The Old Gold Club. Powered by Wolverhampton Building Supplies. The one-stop shop for all your building and DIY products. So, hello. Uh, before we get into the actual podcast, the latest episode that you've downloaded, thanks for doing that, by the way, we have a big announcement that we have to make. I don't know why I'm doing it in this voice, Looms. This is weird. Soon tremendous, me. Um, As always. Basically, uh, we've got a big announcement to make. Um, you might have seen this around because it kind of got leaked out a little bit. Anyway, <laughs> um, but we are going to do the Old Gold Club live. <laughs> Thanks for the. Oh, did you want to join us? So you yeah, give yeah. me no heads up that we're going to do it. Do it again. Old Gold Club live. Uh, that's absolutely killed everybody's ears. Um, yeah, we're going to do Old Gold Club live, and we are going to do it at the Grand Theatre. We are going big time we for have. this. Absolute big time. Um, we are going to. We're not announcing the guests that we're having just yet, um, but we've had some discussions, some chats yes, about the kind of people that we would like to be there. Um, and it would be, hopefully, uh, a big deal. I'm a little bit nervous, if I'm honest. Why? I, I just, I don't know, like, it's a big it's a big old theatre to try and sell out. What if people don't turn up? What if people aren't interested and they don't want to come and see us? We just have to kind of wing it, don't we, then? <laughs> <laughs> Whoever is there. Um, if people want to come, and I really do hope that you do want to come, uh, tickets start from just £10. Just £10. Um, uh, very competitively priced, I feel. It's very affordable. Uh, we're doing it Friday, June the 7th. Um, it'll start 8pm, but we'll give all these details out further than things. So uh, Friday, June the 7th uh, at the Wolverhampton Grand. You can get your tickets now at grandtheatre.co.uk. You can come and see me. Uh, probably don't want to see me. So in fact, you can come and see Looms. Uh, that'll be the main <laughs> thing. And get your photos with Looms and listen to Looms and look at Looms because he looks tremendous right now. And we'll have other guests there as well. And hopefully we'll have some fun, I guess. Of course we will. Yeah, looking forward to it. Big night. Thanks, you sound really excited by it. Uh, that's the whole Cold Club Live at Wolverhampton Grand, grandtheatre.co.uk. Please go and get your tickets. So hello there and uh, welcome to the Old Gold Club. I'm Mikey Burrows, alongside me, Chris Owellamo. Uh, our guest this week is Mr Jeff Thomas. Hello, Jeff. Hello there. Looking tremendous, right. by the way. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much. Very well. Yeah. well. Looms is just asking for a compliment there back. I know, I know. He's yeah, doing yeah, a lot yeah. of boxing training. I don't know whether you've noticed this, because he's coming in a raging bull hoodie. Oh, he's he's like advertising. I'll be honest, I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't sure whether to put this on. Today. Well, normally he's a lot smarter, but now he's kind of claiming that he's a boxer. He's coming in with his boxing hoodies. Well, I've had this hoodie a good few years, mate, but okay. You've seen the size of his arms now as well, Jeff. Is he ripped? Look at him. He's staring. Look, he's, he's, he's got a <laughs> boxing stare down, this, this is a weekly thing. Well, no, well, I was going to come for you because you were obviously very late today, if people might have seen on social media. Really? Can, um, I, can I just say, this, like, all the times that I'm here, the times that I've had to wait, when you've, I've just, and I've said, why have you told me to come in? This, this room is locked. I got here first one time. It was locked. And you were just having a jolly up across the road. And how much abuse did you give us for being late? Yeah. Was it even set up? So, so now you've got to take right. it back. I've came here ten just minutes after the time. Just you accept said. it. I do. Just and accept I've it. If you dish it out, you've you, got to take you, it. You know what? That's the rule, isn't it? I hate it. I hate. Be, one, I hate. Man. No, I think it's a. I hate being late. So I do apologise. 
But you Thank did you. tell me 10.30 in your message. That's all I'm saying. And you turned up at 10.41. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Apologies. Hello, Jeff. By the way, it's like you just walked into a domestic between the this two. It's like a married couple, this guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was going to give you opportunity to plug the fact that you are doing this charity boxing match. Yeah. Oh, you're actually doing a yeah, fight. I've been sucked into it, haven't I? Ooh, so it's against some big unit wanting to put me on my backside. <laughs> That's what it's going to be. That's what I've been. Uh, it's the April twelfth at the King's Hall in Stoke. So it's going to be an interesting one. Yeah. Can people get tickets? Yes. Yeah. There's a uh, there's a table as well, so I, I might be able to get you on a wee table. Oh. If, if uh, you kind of wind your neck in a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Well, uh, we'll we'll come to that. Good luck to that as well. We'll put it out on social media and stuff for you. Um, as ever, talking of social media, we get lots of questions in. Uh, this is brilliant that we've kind of started doing now. Um, random questions for looms is becoming a thing that I'm quite enjoying. And Jeff, you can join in on this as well because some of them are actually quite serious this week. Um, Molyneux Musings says. Um, can you ask uh, Looms, who was the best defender that he played against? He's also got some other questions as well, but we'll start with that. Who was the best defender that you played against in your career? Because you talked about Chris Morgan before and how he yeah, was but difficult I'm just to thinking the against. physicality, you know, like the strongest defender, that I, I think Mika Richards, I think, here. Uh, the, the, just the power I've never you know like you, when you come up against it and I was quite a physical player you know you, you, you throw your weight about uh, I was I was <coughs> at, uh, at Chelsea I thought outstanding I smashed him and I mean I pat him so hard and he's rolled and he stood up and never even looked at me just kind of carried on and I thought oh <laughs> I, I was, I was, but it's just the quality, you know. But uh, for me, it was a skillful centre back, one that would feel you, take it down the chest, and play. I hated that, you know. That would, they would just, they could actually like kind of make a take the mic out you a little bit. But I have to have a little think of that. Jeff, who who stands out for you as the best defender you played against? Um, Des Walker, I think. Yeah. Nottingham Forest, who was just uh, just a, his speed, just giving him so much time. You know, even made a couple of mistakes. He had time to rectify it. So he was just a, he was an awesome player. Um, this is another one. The most intimidating stadium that you played in, aside from Molyneux. You know what? I hated. I hated going down to Millwall. Always, it was one of the places. I've always been successful there, but never really, never been beat there. With all the teams that I've went with, but I hated going there. You know, the fans were just. They were on you. You felt that tension going. Is in. that the old Millwall? Are you, are you old enough to go to the old? Probably, den? probably not even not even as bad as that. So I'm thinking. So yeah. what, I came to English football in 2000, and yeah, Millwall were in. Stoke, been so that's Stoke a new Street. stadium. Yeah. Yeah. The old den was. <laughs> Can't even imagine. <laughs> he had had fences with, um, not barbed wire, but it was like this rotational sort of spikes yes. on the top, so fans could go on the top and actually gouge themselves but roll over but they even still tried to do it to get at you they were, it was a <laughs> it's a tough old place yes. down West Ham you know the old grounds yeah. yeah this is again before the new stadiums but they're, where they're so close to you the fans you can hear every single word so it's uh, well that's interesting actually you say that because I've always wondered and I remember talking to some of the lads because at the end of last season when um, obviously Wolves were getting promoted and yeah. all the stuff um, myself and Yanni who does the sound on here we kind of went down on the pitch straight after the game to go and interview players on the pitch to kind of get all the celebrations around and it's the weirdest thing that obviously I've only ever really seen Molyneux from my viewpoint in the stand 
So to see it on the pitch, it when you're in the stand, it feels massive. Yeah. When you're on the pitch, suddenly you can see everyone's faces and it feels a lot closer. And I don't know whether that's just a weird thing or whether you guys ever get used to that. I, th- I think if you like anything, if you're doing well, you don't even take any notice. It's just a noise and it's just yep. norm- normally if you're doing well, it's a good vibe. But you start hearing and seeing people's faces when you're having a little bit of a bad run. So you're looking out for yourself, you know, your name being <laughs> said in some side. You're hoping it's good, and you know, but sometimes it's bad. So that's what you have to take on the chin. Because can, can you hear individual stuff, or is it just like a big cacophony of noise? Normally it's noise, isn't it? Yeah. Normally it's noise. But like I say, when it's it, things are going bad for the team, or you're you're in a little bit of a rut yourself, you you do become a little bit aware. What would, you, what would you say, Jeff, you know, when, in, in moments like that? See, for me, I knew, I probably went in with the mindset that I wasn't good enough all the time. I had to make sure, right, boom, basics, touch, this, this, this. I have to tick those boxes and then whatever comes else. So I never really, no matter if I got stuck, because everywhere I've went, I split fans right down the middle. Mm. There'd, there'd be fans booing you, get them off, this, 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 and there'd be other fans that, that would would love you. But I never really, it never bothered me. I'd go out, I'd go on with my job, no matter what the atmosphere was. What about yourself? Yeah, no, I, I, I think the only time is coming, actually, here, um, even though the fans were brilliant, you put yourself under pressure, especially after a serious injury. Yeah. Like you, you're trying to get back to a level a fitness and a, a performance that you had before. And I think it's just that, what you say, you put yourself under the pressure and you you, you take that responsibility on by mm-hmm. saying, am I good enough at the moment to, up to really play a part in this, this game? You know, you look against your opponent individually and you look against the team you're playing against and you want to make an impact. So it's it's a it's something you look back on and you wish you'd, you'd had these lessons when you look back at your career because there's certain little bits in your career that you, you you could have put right without you know sort of dragging out for a couple of games where you you yeah. felt like you, you you shouldn't be on the pitch. You knew yourself you weren't good enough at that time, but it's this this big thing in your in your head that uh, if you get that right, then you you've got a good chance of performing well. We're going to talk more um, when we get into the show fully about your Wolves career and um, recovering from injuries and everything that went on from there. Um, Neil Ball has been in touch. He says, um, what is the best slash worst on-pitch banter that you've ever come across? Do you give people... I imagine you give people uh, yeah, a bit I've, of I've heard some... I'm just, it's, always, it's always the money shout. I'm trying to think... Uh, when what player when I was at Colchester actually, who was it that came down, and the money one got thrown out? It's one of the players, and you know what? It's, it does it kind of it kind <laughs> of hits hits that player in a kind of a way, and it got a reaction from a few players that, that heard it. I think it's slightly changed now, hasn't it? I, of course, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's slightly yeah. changed. You know, I think some of the ones I don't know if you've seen the the, the Robbie Savage one when he came out. Remember when Soccer M were, were were videoing him and he's came out and he's went to a little mini. And then he's went, <laughs> yeah. but little things like that is, is, is banter. You know, I think Ben Thatcher, the, the stuff that he came out with, you know, when we're going away on pre season tour, oh, I never knew you could turn right on a plane. You know, little things yeah. like that when yeah, he's come out, you, yeah. Uh, yeah. all right, boys, right, we can stay at mine tonight, but two years are going to have to share. It's a squad, squad of 30. Little things like that, but it's uh, on the pitch, I've heard some, I've heard some, yeah, some ones that really cut. That Personal basically try and stuff. put the other player down because he's obviously not earning that money, and it's got the reaction it probably deserved as well. 
I, th- I think as well, sometimes you... <laughs> I remember at, at playing at Palace, uh, Eric Young and Andy Thorne, two big centre-halves, but they used to give it out. And then there was uh, playing Luton, and they were saying, who's got Robert Red- Redford at the far post? And we are all looking about, who's what? They were on about Ian Dowie. I was going, yeah. <laughs> and poor Ian's like, leave me alone, will you? Yeah. <laughs> were you one that gave it out? I'd like to think, uh, yeah. <laughs> I think you got to, haven't you? You've got to. I, I think my, my style of play was, I had to give 100%. Yeah, because I, I I knew it wasn't the most skillful yeah. of players, but especially if you got the armband as, on as well as captain, which I was lucky enough many times in my career um, to have. That you have to do that. That's a like you said, your, your first touch get right, your first tackle get right, the first everything. Then you set yourself up then to be an influence on the game, but also to influence your teammates. Yeah. So even with the likes of Ian Wright played at Crystal Palace with he would have these odd games where he, he wasn't at it and I used to be at him all the time I say you're wasting it you're wasting it and then, then he'd come back with some sharp remark and all that sort of thing but you got them because you knew getting him angry he would start to spark again so it's just it's, it's a big part of it so you have to do it to your own team sometimes you've got to uh, you've got to do you've, you've, you've got to uh, pull on every you know, if if you've done it, you, you train hour after hour in certain uh, things, especially set pieces. And if somebody's not pulling the weight, you know, especially a, a, against you, then you've you've got to make make it known. Because obviously, like in cricket, the sledging is a big part of, especially yeah. for Australian cricketers, and it comes around. Like if you're in for, if you're in the game, say there's a corner <coughs> and you're marking someone, are you going to turn around to them and go? You're an absolute mare today, mate. Yeah. I mean, even a referee said it to me once. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, said, I've said to the referees, come back with the same, exactly yeah, yeah. that, yeah. He said, don't get the Sunday people tomorrow. He's when they used to put, they used to put <laughs> yeah. the marks in, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> it's good. That. I mean, I used to love it. I mean, I remember just coming back now when you're thinking about things. Vinnie John's giving me... Uh, I just... A lot of footballers go through it. They, you, you marry your first love of your life and you, you move clubs and you, you end up getting married and after a couple of years sadly that relationship breaks down and mine just did and Vinny was going saw your missus last night on the feet I mean yeah that's so it, anything to so your, com, you know, your, your confidence or your concentration that's what a player would do so a bit dodgy I thought <laughs> <laughs> well, that, feel, that feels like a line that's been crossed <sighs> Yeah, but then... Like, if I if we're on the pitch, I'll criticise your performance on the pitch. No, it doesn't, that doesn't no, affect, that, it that, doesn't that, get that. to the player. What you get in his head, don't you? And that's, yeah. that kind of comment makes... Even though you think, no, nah, it's not true, but still you, it, it kind of can get in there a little bit. You know what I mean? Uh, what I'm thinking about, you know, you said about captain being a, being a, a good or a great honour as well. How important is your job in the dressing room? Not even on the pitch, you know, you're, you've got to set an example and lead by example, but then you've got to pull the players up. But off the pitch, how important is what did you yeah, take role I, as captain? I, I think you need, as a captain, is to get a connection with the club. And I think um, I used to love actually coming to the ground after training and get to know all the staff. And Graham's still here making cups of tea. Fizzer, yeah, Graham. You know, and it's, it's just it's lovely coming back to a club because the, the club, the fans and the, the people who work within a the club, they're the... 
the, the mainstay, the heartbeat of the club, yeah. and yeah. to be a part of it. You know, you're only going to be realistically, you're only going to be a part of that for a short period of time. But you really want to sort of chuck yourself into it, and I think that's what I, I love taking that role on, and then linking that sort of with the people of the club back to the team, and then. Because there was times even at, at Crystal Palace where there was um, talk of laying people off because we were getting, you know, might get relegated. So we use that, say, come on, we, we, we don't want this on our on our shoulders. So yeah. just things like that, it helps. It, it helps It helps the club as well. It, it makes them feel a part of it as well. Yeah, no, it's a big part of what a football club is doing. As you've seen the, um, the documentary on Sunderland. Yes, I have, yeah. And it's, it's like common. it's the sh- it's the the cooks at the training ground, the chefs that you kind of feel for, like that yeah. kind of go through that type of thing. They're the real people. That it is, and I think it's yeah, it's just. Uh, I think that was great. I mean, I watched the Man City one as well. I'm I'm a Manchester lad, and from the Blue Arts, and it was it was a little bit sterile compared to the Sunderland one because obviously when you're going through the hardest time, yeah. that, that's when <clears throat> two personalities. Rise, or the, you, you see people for what they really are, and I think, I think that one was really it was great because you saw. I thought Chris Coleman handled himself really well through that. You know, he was a teammate of mine, and he's he's a great bloke. And I think he didn't crumble at all to that. You know, I think he would have got the club back to to better things but um, sadly that's football you don't get much chance to yeah it's a sign of the modern game as well though isn't it because I imagine what would it have been like when you were playing especially when you were here Mm. and the changes that this football club was going through like and even for you looms you know you know if there was a camera crew following Mick around the training ground and all the characters that were in your squad like you wouldn't be able to broadcast most of the stuff would you no no, I, th- I think when I was here, the first arrived with Graham Turner, and Graham Turner just one of the nicest guys in football, um, and it was just yeah, and it's I think when you you do what he did, you know, help the club get to the top level, or nearly did, <clears throat> but you you seen the ground sort of come out of this old pre-war sort of stadium into this. What attracted me was this vision. The Haywood family vision, yeah, really paying back the people at Wolverhampton and building this stadium to be proud of, and I just I felt like I just want to be a part of that. So it's uh, it, it's just a special time. I really enjoyed my four years. It was just tarnished with too many injuries, yeah, well, well, with, and too many managers. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know. we will get into that on our show, which is coming very shortly. Just a reminder: you can always get in touch with us, oldgoldclub at wolves.co.uk, at wolves across social media. If you have any random questions for Looms or anything you'd like us to discuss on this part of the podcast, and while you're on Twitter, give a, a follow to our sponsor at WV Build Supplies on Twitter. That's Wolverhampton Building Supplies. We'll hear from them next, and then it's the show. Wolverhampton Builder Supplies is your one-stop shop for all building and DIY products. And now they're giving listeners of the Old Gold Club an extra 10% off of the already low prices. It doesn't matter if you're a professional builder or just looking to put up a shelf at home. Just tell them in store that you listen to the Old Gold Club and you'll get an even better price in store. So check them out online at wolverhamptonbuildingsupplies.co.uk 
then head to their yard at 372 Bilston Road, Wolverhampton, or give them a call on 01902 500 140. Welcome along to the Old Gold Club. I'm Mikey Burrows. Alongside me, as ever, is Mr. Chris Owellamo. And our guest this week spent four years at Molyneux between 1993 and 1997. Welcome to the Old Gold Club, Jeff Thomas. Thank you. Um, normally, I kind of put like um, the appearances in there and goals and stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, but obviously, your four years was really heavily affected by injury, wasn't it? Yeah, it was blighted by injury. Um, started so well as well. We played down there at Bristol City, won, and the, our performance was really good. And we went up to Sunderland, the old Roker Park, and scored probably one of my best goals in my career right near the end of the game to make it 2-0. Celebrated a little bit, maybe a little bit over the top, <laughs> and that's why somebody took uh, exception to that and did me, really. You know, uh, it was a tackle that... Um, was meant to do harm, and it, that was it. I had to take it. That was me out for a couple of years. It was obviously a great start. Four goals, eight games. You come to a new club. That's that's the start that you want. How how does that affect you mentally? You know, because I, I think there's a lot. We've touched on it a few times already, like depression. Because for me, I was I I, I was injured four months here, and that's probably the longest that I've been away from football. Mm. Luckily enough, and that is that's. That's quite harsh to say. Four months. Yeah. When you're talking years, how how do you, how does the body, the the, the mentality cope with that? Because you seem like a strong person anyway, but it must be hard. Yeah. No, it was tough. Um, and because it started so well, and the, the season before, uh, I, I had a chance of going to Blackburn Rovers. You know, and they their story was very similar to this. It was a family that were taking it off and taking it over and wanted to, to get it into the top flight. And obviously Blackburn went on to do great things. And then the opportunity of coming here happened the year after. And it was like similar sort of messages coming out from the Haywood family. And I thought, I just wanted to be a part of this part of this dream. And uh, like you say, it started off so well. <clears throat> Not just the goals, but the f- performances. I felt I was back on top of my game. Mentally, I was, I was strong again and enjoying football better than anywhere else. And to have that taken away was was really, really tough. But then it's just a case of <clears throat> thinking, right, I need an operation. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then how quickly can I get back? And after about seven months, it <clears throat> came clear that it was, wasn't done yeah. right. And so um, it, another year passed and it was just so, so tough. And there, there was a physio here that we called Mad Dog and he was... Uh, he just, I don't know, he probably hates me, but I used to be a pain. But uh, there was quite a few injuries, sadly, yeah. in that period as well. There was, because you were a major signing at the time. Because it was what, I mean, you mentioned there was interest from Blackburn, who obviously three years later go on to win the Premier League. Um, there was reported interest at the time, I don't know how true this was, that Arsenal and Man City mm. had also been interested in to, you around the time. I, I spoke to Peter Reid um, the night before I signed for Wolves. And this is where I'm a Man City fan. And everybody thought I was going there. All my family thought I was going, and I did, to be honest. But Graham Turner just kept on calling me, saying, we've got these great plans. Want you, we've got Steve Bull, who deserves to be in the top flight. We just think you're a big piece of getting us there. And I just, it was just one of them things. And with the Man City talks, I also had talks with Trevor Francis at Sheffield Wednesday. 
And it was in that changed my mind. He said Man City was the best club I ever played for, but don't go there now because it's going to implode. And he was right. And uh, he was explaining why it's going to implode. And I just weighed everything up. I, I felt I want to be a part of a club that's probably going to start going down or do want yeah. to be part of a club that's... Uh, and what I like and, um, you know, like these people like Ian Wright, who was a kid when I was playing at Palace, wanted to play at the top level and win things. I just wanted to be a, always a part of something that I was proud of and hopefully things would follow that. But um, <coughs> I just thought just coming to Wolves was really fulfill a lot of things. And you, so you put that down to Turner then, a lot of that just as persistence coming for you, talking to you, telling you the plan of the club. You know, I think in some situations it is important as a player. You look at the club, a Man City fan, there's interest, you spoke to the manager, but then there's something that just kind of takes you, takes your eye off that ball and think, you know what, this is probably better for me at the minute. What what, what was it about Turner that, that, that kind of infatuated you with, with the club then, would you say? <clears throat> it was just very, very honest, a nice guy, and uh, I just warmed to him straight away. And I actually drove up here and we ate a meal and we had a, a, a bottle of wine, shared a bottle of wine and we was talking about his plans and he started telling me about his family and just got to know him in such a short space of time. And and then the, the thing that got me was he rang me just before he was going on a family holiday and he says, listen, I don't want it to be ruined. I want to know that you're going to sign. And I, I said, look, just let me think about it, and then he just kept on ringing me from holiday, and so it was one of those things. Just uh, yeah, because at the time, um, David Kelly, Kevin Keane, Cyril Regis, Peter Shirtliff, yeah. all came in in that summer. It was kind of the real start of the stadium was pretty much nearly done. <clears throat> yeah, and you spoke to us on our podcast a bit about you know you suddenly see that for the first time there's. The rebirth of a football club, almost that it's yeah. it's there, and suddenly Sir Jack's throwing money at it. Because even in the summer of '94, suddenly there's million pound being spent on Don and <coughs> John DeWolf comes yeah. in, and Steve Frogger and Tony Daly and um, Neil Emblem came in yeah. at that time. Like that was serious spending for the time. It was, and I think it, everybody thought that the club was going to get to the top, but not just get to the top, but carry on. Doing what the Blackburn ended up doing, you know, we, we, I thought it was I was part of something special, and with the players that we're bringing in, you know, um, there were some quality players. Kevin King from West Ham was, you know, a, yeah. a top top winger, and um, you know, David Kelly had done everything at that level, you know, and never done at the top. You know, he always seemed to be Championship level, and but scored lots of goals, and he was proving that again here and. Uh, you had Don Goodman to that and various characters. It was a really good, strong squad, but sadly it was decimated by injury. Did that did that make it harder for you? You know, like obviously you're 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 part of the group. You're you're probably not you yourself frustrated because you you know that you can't really get get that to that level that you want to be because mm. of the injury holding you back, and then you see the likes of these quality players. You're thinking, you know, I want to be part of it. I want to be able to be a hundred, well, as close to a hundred percent as you can because a lot of players you, they never play a hundred percent. But you know what I mean? Like you said yourself when you first came, you've scored day goals, you've had a great start. You weren't quite, you were on on the best form that you, that you felt you could be in your mm -hmm. career. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it's taken away from you. But all of a sudden, this club, 
it's it's true to its promise. They're bringing in these players. They're, they've got that 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 drive, that that mentality, that player. The players coming in. That must be even harder for you not to be. I'm 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 at my best. Yeah, I, and it was a case of what if. You know, my yeah. career is what if, and <laughs> my four years here is. And even when I was watching the games going by, it was what if. You know, there's certain games where I felt I probably could have influenced. Of course. It, you know, with my style, we. Brought in people like Darren Ferguson, you know, and uh, mm. Simon Osborne, great midfielders. But you know, uh, the physical side they they were lacking, and I just felt you know, the balance was probably not right certain times. And that's when you start looking at a game, and you you get frustrated. Oh, I wish I was playing; I could have made a difference today. But um, no, it's just it's, it, sometimes you've just got to step back and say, right, I'm injured. You can't get too frustrated. <clears throat> He just got to work hard in training. So if Tony Daly had a serious injury at the same time. And me and Tony have probably got the skinniest legs in football anyway. And we ended up being like, I don't know, we were massive, our chests, our arms and everything. We just used to do pump weights. And it was yeah. a, just a one way of getting us through this dark period of just challenging ourselves to make a, who's going to be the strongest today. So And then challenge all the fit guys to come in, come on, see how many weights you can do. They used to get bored with us, but uh, it was a way of keeping ourselves entertained and motivated. Because uh, I was looking through the numbers uh, the other day, Sam, you started the first four league games of the 94-95 season, at which point Graham Taylor had obviously arrived. Um, you then missed the next nine, returned to play seven in a row through November, then you only featured another three t- times as the team lost in the playoff semis that year it's that kind of stop start nature I guess that if you if it, is it different if you are long term injured like you missed the whole of the 93-94 season mm-hmm. after that injury whereas at this point you're now kind of coming back for a bit getting a little run feel like you're up to speed and then you're out again I think because you're out so long you, you get little niggles that pop up that would never happen before and I think because the injury, like you say, first time you get your head round it, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna be out for six to twelve months, and but then to be told the operation was wrong, so you have to have a bone graft to fill the holes in where the, the tendons have been put in there with the screws and everything. You had to wait. I had to wait eight weeks, not doing anything. My knee was just no, nothing keeping it together for for that length of time, and then go back into the operation uh, to have it fixed again. Thankfully, it felt better straight away so mentally that got me through that period but then everybody knows that getting back after such a long time it's your rest of your body needs to catch up with the you know you do you try and do as much strength work everywhere to to keep it balanced but yeah it's frustrating and and bizarrely when we got to the um semi-final against Crystal Palace in the playoffs I felt I was not far off back to my best and this is 97 by this point yeah and it's just it and but it was too late you know we sadly we lost uh, the first game but we we battled out of the second game but um, just fell short but that that was my my world's career over and it's, it's bizarre because it, it is a what if yeah um, <coughs> period of my my career really because it could have been probably my best period, but it became my most frustrating period at uh, such a great club. Can I ask, was there much dialogue between like yourself and Turner and yourself and Taylor in, in that, at that period? You know, they're old school managers, and managers probably then, if you're, in, if you're injured, they're not really 
Or, or, or was that dialogue quite good? Their man management quite good in that kind of sense? Because that's important for a player to be yeah, as well. Yeah, Graham Turner was great. You know, he's obviously I was um, really gutted for him, really, because he, there was a, a couple of <coughs> players getting injured who hopefully were going to make a big impact on the, on yeah. the club. And and sadly, he's, I think we played Swindon away in a cup game and the crowd started turning against him and I don't think he lasted too much longer. So then Graham T- Taylor comes in and Graham Taylor I've not spoke to since uh, my French chip against, well, my whatever, I don't know what you want to call it, against... Uh, we'll get to uh, that, don't yeah. you worry. So it was England against France and that happened and Graham turns up and I've not spoke to him since 91-2, whatever it was when that happened. And it was an interesting first meeting with Graham Taylor. But he's, he's such a nice guy, Graham, as well. And we, we ended he up was, He's going to ask you, well, come on then. Well, no, because I'm fascinated yeah. by it. Because, uh, you know, he um, he gave you your England cap. Nine caps. Nine, nine England caps. <clears throat> Never lost. So, but you hadn't spoken to him no. in that period? No, and I, would, I was... I was on standby. I played one more game uh, in Russia, but I got dropped to the B side, and I, I was in everybody's squad. You know, in the in the papers, I was in everybody's squad to go to Sweden, and then I got told I was on standby for the squad going out there. I was expecting a phone call off Graham or something to just say something, but then I just and that was a tough period. That was. The season after it was a it's tough game back, knowing that uh, you've you've not been a part. It was in in a way it was good that I wasn't a part of what happened in Sweden. But um, that's Euro '92. Yeah, and but um, you know, it was a tough it, that was a tough time. But then Graham has a way about him, and he he always had a coach with him, uh, Steve Harrison. Steve Harrison was fantastic as as. He's, he's, he's number two. He just sort of had everything that Graham didn't have. And they worked so well together. And it, it, it ended up being a, a, a bit of a joke, really, you know, with, with what went on. It was, it was, it wasn't, it was, like I say, it was an interesting first meeting, but after that, it, it was sorted. Did you get answers then to why you <coughs> were on standby? Did um, you ask the question? Yeah. <coughs> and I, I asked the question why he, he didn't get in touch. He said, well, you know, what football's like, you know, you just have to concentrate what's in, in front of you and what you have, and sadly you weren't a part of it. Um, but I'm very, and he, he did say, I'm very proud that I give you nine caps and you played a part in, because I think he went about 13, 14 games at the start of his England career, if not not losing a game, you know, and I was a, a part of that. So, and I, I think he was uh, sledged quite a bit with bringing certain players in that weren't the norm, which weren't like the Arsenal, Man United, Liverpool yeah. players, the top four. He was he was a, probably the first manager that started looking beyond that to, to make England a decent side. Because we talked a, a little bit about this with Tony Daly when he was in right back at uh, one of the very early podcasts that we did, because he knew, obviously, Graham, before he went to England. Yeah. And then, obviously, <coughs> then signs for him and knows yeah. what he's like afterwards you obviously knew him during the England period and then afterwards how different was he by the experience that he'd gone through <clears throat> and, uh, it's hard to say because he when you met him he was very strong and as if like it didn't affect him but I actually nearly moved next door to him there was a, 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 a housing development being in uh, 
sort of coalfield, that area. And then we, I was looking to move into this brand new house and then Graham turned up with this house next door saying, I'm buying this. I just thought, no, this is going to be a little bit weird. But <laughs> you know? well, we, we got close because we were talking about, are, are you going to move in or are you not? We both put deposits down. And he became more of a friend, Graham. He became somebody I could ring up and and especially with later on after finishing football with things that went yeah. on after that you know he, he became a great help um because eventually by the time you kind of get back in and you, as you say when you felt like you were finally back mm. and we're talking kind of 96 97 period now graham had gone as well yeah and suddenly it's another manager that you've got to try and develop mark with in mark mcgee yeah yeah mark was i, I don't think we hit it off right you know I think I was probably at the most frustrating part of my career you know where you, you feel you're getting back fit and you're not getting the chances so you become a pain in the backside really you're so always on the training pitch <laughs> probably not involved with the first team squad for a little while and I was kicking balls all over the place I remember one just kicked having a competition with myself seeing how high I could kick it in the background and he's, he's probably thinking that idiot over there but <laughs> I, I was just, you know, I was frustrated and we, we probably didn't get off on the right foot. And then a few things happened with <laughs> my career with Mark, which after you've, you, your career's finished and you look back, and I've met him a number of times since, and we, you know, get on well, and it's, I recognise he was under pressure, I was under pressure trying to get fit. That It was just uh, one of them things. Was it really? Is that is that a regret then? Maybe that you you never done the right thing at that moment in time for the situation. That if you'd done it, if you'd done it properly, maybe. Yeah, I think I think it's a a bit both. I think um, there were certain times where it was obvious certain things were were going on, and it was more political and and what should have been happening. But you know, it it does football. You know, and I found myself probably for the first time. Not being able to get force myself into a side um, because other people were in front of me, which is you know you, you respect. But um, no, I, I just I always remember a game at QPR where uh, we had I think Simon Osborne and Fergie playing midfield and they were getting ripped apart, <clears> and <throat> we just had a bit of a set to half time because uh, Don was involved in that discussion, and then I backed Don up, Don Goodman, and I backed him up. And it just became a bit of a free-for-all. And eventually you changed the, 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 the formation. It's just, to be honest, it's probably, looking back, it's probably all the pros probably thought they had the right to say things. And, and back in the day, we did. We, it, that was the way the dressing room. I think it was on the change where managers probably wanted players just to go there, shut up. Is that, that that's a negative though, and that's what's wrong about football today, isn't it? Well, I think? I think so. Do you think that it's, it's about having leaders that can that can make a comment? That's the managers brought you in. He, he brings in players to trust. We had the chat with, with Mick. He brought players in that he knew that he could trust. They were an extension of him See, out on the pitch. But they, they, you're not going to agree all the time. No, but it, you're open for discussion, aren't you? Exactly right. And I think that's where we sort of um, didn't sort of connect. And I think I had probably. Looking back, did I have too much to say? I don't know. I don't know. Because you were a former captain, though, weren't you? Yeah. And you were I'd, a senior pro at this I, point. At this time, I was a senior pro, and I just I felt certain things had to be said. And, 
obviously, you know, looking back, was I right? I don't know if I was right or wrong, really. But it was that was the way a dressing room was, and that's the way I was brought up. You know, a manager would let players have a go at each other for about 10 minutes, and then he'd have his bit. And then we'd go out second half or full-time, we'd get on the coach and think about it. But, yeah, it's just... Um, <clears throat> It was a period where it was frustrating for me. I just felt like the, the club were just on the cusp, but just, you know, I just wanted to be a part of something that was was, was good, really. Because kind of how bittersweet was it for you in the end that your kind of final act as a Wolves player was losing in the playoff semi-finals to Palace? To be honest, I'd, I've cried twice on a football pitch. Once when we lost Crystal Palace against Man United FA Cup final 1990, and that I just I just I wanted to win that much that I knew my career had finished at Wound. <clears throat> and I, I just felt I just wanted to finish on a high, and I just even if it was getting to Wembley, we lost there. But I know it was my old club, but I'm, I've, I've never been one of them that doesn't celebrate. Yeah. You know, if you go back to your old club, I I I just give myself hundred percent to yeah. that club that I signed for. So kissing your badge and all that sort of thing, I, I didn't believe it. I just you just give hundred percent for your club that you play for. So I got a stick. I actually scored on my first game back at Crystal Palace when I think we won two one, and I got the winner from a corner and I celebrated. And Palace fans still pull me up about it, but no, just because uh, that, like, it almost it, to me, it says a lot about your character and what you were like as a, as a man as well as a player. In that, you know that you're going to leave, and I presume, given the relationship you had with Mark McGee, even if Wolves had got promoted, you probably thought, "I'm not <coughs> going to be around." Yeah. And so you go into a game against a club that. You, I mean, I know you were a crew and stuff beforehand, but effectively, you know, you, you captain them. You were in FA Cup finals and everything. A club that clearly would mean a lot to you, and yet your primary thing is, I want to get this team promoted that I'm in, even though I'm not going to get any of the benefit from that. No, um, <clears throat> it's pride, isn't it? It's, it's, it's more than that, though. I, I don't. To be honest, I didn't think about it. I knew that this is probably my last game if we lost. I even played left back. I was put left back because I, I don't know if somebody was an injury or um, Palace were causing trouble in the first game. But um, I played a, a ball through. I can't remember it like it's yesterday. I played a ball through to Mark Atkins to score the first goal, and it was like it was one of them balls I remember that he cut the the defence, and I thought, oh, that was all right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just things like that you remember, and I just thought, you know, I was thought, this is it. The, the crowd, are, some people have actually said it was the best atmosphere they've ever had at Molyneux at the time. And I just felt, I got, I got caught up in all the emotion of the game and everything, and we just ran out of steam, hmm. just ran out of steam. Um, we talk about emotion. Um, obviously, you went through... Something that I think the majority of us will never ever truly um, really understand how hard it is and what happened to you after your career finished with the diagnosis of leukemia. And just to kind of finish off our, our Facebook show from this, because it kind of, I don't know whether you felt it, it brought you back and brought a lot of feelings back when it happened to Carl in the last oh. year or so. Yeah. <clears throat> it's. It, it, I was doing the Tour de France as a fundraiser and um, <clears throat> I was having a bad day. I just had a crash 
and it was, I can't remember we were on probably about stage 10 and it's a grueling event even if you're doing it the way we were doing it we're just trying to cover every single mile every day just one day ahead of the professional and I was having a really tough day and I was and you know where you see these um, programs where they get loads of celebrities or not you know like a big brother situation yeah. When you get caught up in a team doing an event like this, you become part of a bubble. And what's what's going on in your world? Falling off a bike and your team trying to get you to the end of the, the day is all that's in your mind. And then all of a sudden, I got off the bike feeling like crap, really. And then somebody said, have you heard news about Kalakimi back home? And I don't even know the guy. And it just, poof, again, it just like a punch in the face. And I just, I was an emotional wreck. You know, I just, it just brought everything back. Mm. Why I'm doing this? Because I was questioning, why am I doing this again? This stupid idiot, you know, for getting on a bike. But I'd just done an interview on ITV um, live to, while they were covering the tour on ITV4. And it just, all the emotion just came back, why we're doing it and for people like Carl, people who had just been diagnosed and all that. So it was just, and it brought back my first day of being diagnosed as well. So it's, I knew exactly where he was and what he was feeling and just, that was it, just. Because do you have a different perspective on your football career because of what you went through pretty much immediately after you stopped playing? Yeah, not not just football, everything. I had um, probably about nearly a year of non-football anyway because when I got injured here I invested into clothes shops so I went in to chuck myself into business for a year then thinking I'll get that consolidated and go back into football but then I got hit by diagnosis you know saying that somebody's saying that you've got only three months to live it's pretty uh, it makes you stand still and it hits you hard but um, but what it does it makes you put everything in the right boxes you know you, you you come back to thinking about just your family what they're going to do after you've gone and making sure that everything's in place for them yeah. nothing else matters and then somebody does some, some great professor doctor comes up to you and said you've got three years wow just three years to me was like the best news ever so looking back what it did to me was put make everything uh, I just enjoyed everything anyway. But it put football in a different box. It, it put everything into a different perspective, really. And when you came through that, you made that decision that you were going to do as much as you could to help other people. Because you have raised... I mean, you're not going to say it, so I'm going to say it right now on the Facebook show so it goes out. You've raised millions of pounds, haven't you? Well, we've... Uh, well, We've put something in process that's helped that happen, yeah, definitely. We've, um, my professor who saved my life, he's, he was seen as a maverick and because he wanted to change things, and he didn't have a voice. So doctors, he's, he's cruel, really, because these doctors and, and professors and nurses, you know, they're, they're, it's like a football team. They're given a, a, a team, and they have to do the best with that team. But when you find out you could have Lionel Messi or you could have Ronaldo in your team, but there's, uh, the structure's not allowing that to happen. Then you find you can play a part in changing it. So I became his voice for a couple of years. There was a, me and a fellow patient that became 
uh, you know, we campaigned, we went down to Parliament, we, we were in front of all sorts of different health ministers, uh, health secretaries, the NHS we were in front of, and I found myself in a in a world that it was far removed from the world of football, but the way you approach things, very similar. You know, you've got a team and you, you, you believe that um, a, a few tweaks here and a few tweaks there can unlock something special. And I think that's what we did. We, we, we knew that the science was there and that could probably save people's lives. <clears throat> but the ability to get that science out wasn't there. And it was just an infrastructure of clinical research nurses that we started funding and putting them in different hospitals around the country. And then you put an umbrella over them and then you collect all the data from the patients that are suffering this illness. And then you find pharmaceutical companies were giving us free drugs. And that's leveraged about £250 million worth of free drugs into the NHS. And what we're finding is people having new hope. So rather than the olden days where people are saying, sorry, we can't do any more, there's, there's a likelihood now that there'll be a trial that's going on that potentially could be life-saving cures now. Because... Um there will be a lot of people because you're a patron of cure leukemia yeah i should say which obviously um uh, i don't use the term benefited it sounds like such a, a weird term to say it but obviously from a lot of the donations <coughs> and fundraising that went on during that last season for carl and i think um there will be a lot of people who will just hope that that can make some kind of a difference uh, well i can say for a fact it it, it has done and it's it's Cure leukemia is, is, is really Charlie Craddock. He was a professor. He set it up because he felt he, felt he was shackled. Um, just to give you one example, there was a girl that um, he, he had to tell that she didn't have long left. But there was a trial, and the, the only way she could get a trial was an investment of so much. So we made some money, and it just allowed her to have a little bit more time. And... But she shouldn't have got to that point. She should have had the the latest treatment. But he knew about that latest treatment, but he just couldn't get hold of it. So it's just it's just knowing that he's had to go through that probably more or less every day. You know, he's telling people like this. Yeah. So you 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 feel like you you've got a big role to play. So what Kill Leukemia have done has been a proving ground of how things um, should be done. But then had to sell their their knowledge to other big organisations, you know, trying to get it into Cancer Research UK and Bloodwise and all these bigger, bigger charities. But now what, what's happened over the last five years or so, uh, cure leukaemia have just been driven for patients' benefits. Not the business or anything like that, it's just purely patient benefits. And like you say, sadly, car leukaemia put us on a, a, a different, even just getting into Wolverhampton, more people knowing about the work they do. And and that's been my role really is is patients have a voice, yeah. and and they have a bigger voice than some of these special people, these scientists and doctors. So, you know, you you just you become a part of that world, and if you can, like Kalakim has done, he's he's made it clear that you know he wants to help out in the future, and he's he's finding his way how he's going to do that. But even going through that, you know, he was. He was fantastic the way he's, he's, he's attacked it, and um, and the wolves supported him. And like you say, the charity benefited. I hate the word charity. You know, it's it's something that I don't like 
um, scene I'm a part of. But it's we like to see ourselves as a business, and our business is actually finding new ways to benefit patients. And we believe we're on the cusp of something really, really special. The Old Gold Club, powered by Wolverhampton Building Supplies. For the best price locally, head to wolverhamptonbuildingsupplies.co.uk. So that was the show, on with the podcast. Um, I think there'll be a lot of people who will be uh, very moved by some of the stuff that you've been saying. And um, I think maybe just educating people, I guess, on everything that's that's in there. Because I, I know it must be difficult, because everybody will want to talk to you about the one thing sometimes. <laughs> and that, that must be quite well, hard. You know, that's great. Because I think you, you go through a career and... There's some great players that aren't remembered, you know, for various reasons. Because there's so many good players that have gone through history of a, a club, and and it, sometimes you get remembered within that one club, but then your name doesn't spread as further than that, really. But bizarrely, then you do something wrong, and you you get remembered <laughs> for the rest of your life, really. You know, it's it's normally the the second sentence somebody mentions to me. They, they normally ask. Are you okay first? Yeah. Then they go, what the hell were you doing in that, that game against France? So <laughs> well, we are going to get to that. I thought I that's what you're talking about. Well, no, I, well, I do have one question go on. <laughs> before we move on from the, the fundraising stuff. Um, what's Lance Armstrong like? Oh. Well, yeah. Because you, you did the Tour de France with him, or well, a couple of stages of it with him. Yeah, it, 2015, it was celebrating 10 years of me going into remission and I wanted to celebrate 10 years of what we've done within the organisation, Cure Leukemia, and, and um, how things are progressing. And when I was diagnosed, I was given a book by uh, a, a work colleague who I met in Italy, actually, when I was buying some clothes on you know, the nice part of uh, retail. And she sent me uh, this book, two days after she heard the news. And it was not about the bike by Lance Armstrong. And his, his battle against illness, but his, his focus on getting the best treatment and but then going back and wanting to be a champion. I know it's tarnished now, but that message for millions of cancer sufferers back then was a positive message that yeah. there wasn't many about back in the early 2000s. And... I just thought, if I'm going to celebrate my 10 years, I've got to be honest and truthful to everybody who's played a part in that. So I met Lance, I, I rang him up first, and we got to talk, and then I went out to see him. And I wanted to see him face-to-face to see if I could trust uh, him getting involved, and he, he wouldn't take it over for him, because he's you know he's a bit of a control freak. And he was a broken man back then, uh, talking 2014. And he'd just been chucked out of his own foundation. And I just felt if I could give him a little bit of a lift back. Because there's, there's people in this world that are doing an awful lot worse things, you know. There's, and I just felt um, if I could get him on this this first step to redemption, you know, a bit naively, I, I, I think. But, um, yeah, just uh, I felt give it a go. And... I got so much abuse, to be honest, in the UK yeah. uh, for the decision. But I thought it was worth it because I think the message... I, I kept the charity away from from the, the, the name being associated with uh, the name Lance Armstrong, but 
in the long run, then people know me for being associated, obviously, a patron of Kill Leukemia in the work we do. And but I got my message out what Kill Leukemia does to a bigger reach. Mm-hmm. And yes, I had to t- pay the price of a little bit of grief here and there. And first, you know, certain people didn't agree with it. I had to take that on the chin, but that's life. You know, you've got yeah. a decision to make and live with it. Better to be known for that than for the, the mess against France well, that finally, keeps coming finally. up all the time. <laughs> I normally bring it up. No, no, it's, <laughs> it, it is a... I think there's a few in this room that have uh, similar sort of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you just threw it in there, hasn't it? I was waiting for it. I thought it'd be Mikey, but no! no I have to do my research. <laughs> so what, 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 what went through your mind? I was in the, and I was in the best form I've ever been in my career at Rolls. I think I'd got, what, seven goals or eight goals in four or five games. Opened that door for me internationally. It's one of the, those moments that you don't even think about it. It's a goal, you know. So what came what came through your mind to, to take it on? Well, like you, I, I thought I was, I was playing a nice game and I'm not lost in an England shirt. Graham Taylor was saying me and David Platt were what he wanted to take to Sweden we were solid uh, I remember playing against Russia we beat them 3-0 at Wembley their manager said it's the best midfield they've played against so robust so attacking David Platt bombing up and down but he had the, the, the edge of scoring a few goals on the end of the runs but my opportunity came Gary Lineker I played 1-2 with Gary Lineker and I found myself with nobody around me and you know where you you don't think about anything apart from you want to score but stupidly I felt well I've got an opportunity of doing something a little bit flashy I'm going to chip the goalkeeper and and totally scuffed it there's no other way of describing it totally totally scuffed it and that was it I had another 20 minutes I think of a game where I think (laughs) I had 20 minutes of a game where I think Graham Taylor left me on that pitch to see if I got through it yeah. and the, obviously the, the crowd with the rumours of every time I got on the ball and uh, see if I if I hid I probably did try and hide a little bit trying to keep out of it but we won the game Alan Shearer scored on his debut and sadly the game's remembered for that one chip I think uh, even Alan's second in the did you have it in the bank though? Like, would you do that in training and things? Or to, oh, it was definitely in the bank. When, yeah, <laughs> well, no, it was definitely in the bank. But probably you do it when you know when you end of a session when you you're yeah. messing about with a keeper. Nigel Martin and mixed owl keepers. They're all the same mentality. Hate being chipped. So you just have a little pop at them, and then you you forget though in training, don't you? Did it go in or did it at the crossbar or whatever? Um, but I learned my lesson because, to be honest, the next time that situation happened was up at Sunderland and it was a one-on-one, exactly the same, through the keeper and I thought there was no way I was going to chip in this time, <laughs> bent it round him this time. And I should have done exactly the same the first time at Wembley. It would have uh, maybe prolonged my career a little bit longer in, in the English shirt. I mean, you were a fair old distance out there, weren't you, on this? And you know, maybe, you know, big international game at Wembley, you might have been a bit tired running through. I mean, it, it's a bit different. <laughs> Stop looking at me like that. I was offside. But did that flag go up? He should have done his job. <laughs> were you offside? Yeah. So I, I, I remember I came on just, what, three weeks after I retired. I uh, went on Soccer AM and they've said, look, it's, the whole show's going to be on that. They gave me a book, 
know, all sorts of things. You know, the whole show was on it. Uh, and they put it up and got the offside line, and I'm yeah, I'm yeah. offside. So, See, it's, that, that the, the social media, I don't was it around when, yeah, it was. You was know, it? I wasn't on any social media, you know. I remember I, I woke up the next morning in the hotel in Glasgow, me, my brother, my best mate, we went out in the night after it, and uh, I bought all the papers. I'm driving down south, Jim White gave me a text saying he wanted to speak about Ashley Cole, but basically, he just yeah, wanted yeah. to get me on. And uh, I read all the papers, put them in the bin, and I came down. And I remember uh, the only place I wanted to be was back in the dressing room. I knew I would get the banter, but and uh, it was I don't think it was. I scored them my next game out, but it got disallowed. And then I scored against Watford uh, the game after that. Uh, but it was just one of those. I just needed to be back, and I think I scored some like six goals in my next what three or four games for Wolves. So it never really affected us. And obviously we we went on to promotion and all that, but. Uh, it hit me hard because it was like a centimetre away from... I just took a big step. I don't know why. I could have came onto it and just, just tapped it into an empty goal. But what is this? It is. is, what it is. And, and you can't change it, can you? That, that's a sad thing. I tried every time I watched the, the, the DVD. <laughs> yeah. I thought, yeah, maybe this time it'll change. I asked you could, if there was social media then because there wasn't when I did that. Yeah. My faux pas. It was, um, it was TV. And it was David Bedell and various comedians that took it up on live shows. And right. it, I think it was a Mary Whitehouse experience, this show. Yeah. And every week they were, there was like a study or there was a clip. And there was, a, there was two guys dressed in white coats, scientists trying to work out. And they had a clipboard, a whiteboard, and they, they put a cross where I was. And then a ball and, and then the guy actually went out the room and went down the corridor and said the ball ended up here and it was just BBC 2 9 o'clock prime time you know on a yep. Friday night it was just I found myself my dad was ringing me up you're on the TV again oh yeah thanks <laughs> thanks for letting me know <laughs> he was so proud <laughs> oh, blessing um, his was worse though wasn't it yeah <laughs> no, he was off, offside. Offside. <laughs> I wish offside. I was offside. I've just, I've just checked it back. I don't think. I think in modern VAR, I think you'd be all right. Oh, and explain the offside rule to me, please. It's the part of your body that can that score. Can score isn't it? Right. There's a defender's foot is level with your knee <sighs> from this angle. You're just getting a, trying to get a reaction. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, is mine offside? No, <laughs> I mean, in fairness, you run for your own half. It's an incredible. It was a great run. run. Great run. But it said somebody put it. Okay, it was the anniversary a couple of weeks ago, and somebody put it on Twitter, and he put it on such a way, kept on replaying it, and I was watching it for about ten minutes. I was thinking, how oh, I had so many different options, so many. See, I'm going to show it to Looms now. Well, he's, so uh, I think that's is this is. That's Chance. Jeff in the middle. No, this oh. is yours. Oh, okay. So this it. That's Jeff in the middle. Yeah. That spots the moment. Look at the run that he starts driving through. And then. Yeah. I mean, there was a bit of height on it. Was there? Not enough to take it over the keeper, <laughs> but there was a bit of height on it. But look at the room to the left, to his right. All that space there to just bend it round. You had tremendous hair back in that. Yeah, yeah. Great run as well. Yeah. I think the left back plays you on side. I don't, I, I don't mind you taking that on. I think that's on all day, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, if I was standing in the goal line and went here all day long, ten out of ten, not a problem. Yes, I don't think about it. 
<laughs> right, let's do our rundown. Um, we go through uh, who was the best player that you played with at Wolves. It was. There was I'm, I'm only thinking because it, it was a decent side then. You know, there was a lot. You know, the the, the one who didn't last long and probably took his place. I thought Paul Cook. I probably one of the best left foots I've seen. I had, I always thought I had a decent one. But he was a, a, a very, very good player. And um, it's a shame he, he couldn't hang about and, you know, find a way of playing in that side. Paul Cook was a very good player. Uh, who would you say is the, was the worst trainer at the club? Worst trainer? Should have thought of these before I came here. So, um... I can't, I, can't, I can't think. Who's the worst trainer? Um, Come on, to, obviously you've had people on from uh, my yeah, time. Yeah, I'm but... trying to think who um, Tony Daly suggested. I think he actually came with someone that was from when he was there. Uh, oh, well done. Paul Blades. Paul Blades, the centre-half, he was uh, from Derby. He's, he, he used to moan if it was too windy, too cold. and <laughs> yeah. well, The next question is biggest moaner, so is he that as well? On the football pitch, I, I, I've got to take the, the role there. I think I was the biggest moaner in the squad. I think uh, I remember Paul Birch, bless him, he's, he used to, I used to have him in tears, I think. Okay. <laughs> Birch used to get grief off me because he was such a good player and a great character. I thought I used to be dragging him all over the place, getting him in the right position because he was just in front of me or just to the left of me. And just, uh, I think Bertie had enough of me. Uh, who would you say was your best friend at Wolves? Don Goodman. Yeah, Don was uh, is a character, still is. Yeah. Great lad. Um, who had the best and the worst dress sense? You've mentioned him, Tony Daly. Tony Daly? Was the worst. <laughs> he, he used to uh, think it was Flash. No, hold on, no. There... <laughs> his teammate from Villa who came same same time Froggy yes <laughs> I forgot about him he's that bad that I forgot about him <laughs> both I think both Don and Tony Daly both said that Steve Froggart could wear an Armani suit oh, and still look like a hobo. yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah he, he, great stories about his dress sense yeah he's, have you heard about him getting done speeding Froggy yeah, that story. No. Have you had Froggy on here? If we're going to do him. Well, I'll, I'll let him save that story. He's brilliant, so he's got a classic story. <laughs> <laughs> That's to do with dress sense as well. Uh, who, was the, who was the funniest player that you played with? Uh, Don Gunman mentioned him before as well. Don was... Uh, he'd, he'd take people off. He's a natural. You know, he'd get the voices straight away. Rolf Harris singing Bridge Over Troubled Waters. Fantastic. Classic. <laughs> 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 Again, he's not. Yeah, we might move on from now. that. Yeah, one. yeah, leave that. Um, one. <laughs> who was who was the best manager that you worked for? Oh, what Wolves? Yeah, Graham Turner. I think I, I just felt he if he had a bit more time, a bit more luck. I think he would have um, done really well. I mean, he did really well anyway. He's, I'm sure he's mm. a lot of people have tremendous respect for him, right? Rightfully so. But I think. Things worked out a little bit better for him it, with the team that we put together. It would have, uh, he would have been really successful. What was the best goal you scored for Wolves? 
again mentioned it there. Sunderland, you know, the, the game uh, got, you know, Lee Howie got me just after. Um, I, again, it was like my England opportunity against France, one-on-one -on -one with the keeper. I run, play a one-two from just the outside the edge of our box. Sunderland, we were 1-0 up and they were battering us and then they were just all, all in a high line. I just went through and just had the keeper to beat and thankfully celebrated to the, all the Wolves fans in the corner. Oh, Pat Sunderland, <laughs> fantastic. What was the best game you were involved in for Wolves? We had some crackers down here. I mean, I've, I always, I always find it difficult to pick out games because they all seem to blur into one, but I used to love playing Tuesday nights here under the lights. The atmosphere was brilliant. Yeah. So we we had well the games that stuck out, the West Brom games. I used to love a derby game. Yeah, I used to for reasons which were right, probably right. They they changed the music that they we come out of before the game, but the the music that used to really rev me up was uh, I can't sing it now, but uh, it, something about. West Brom go off somewhere, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. and it was uh, it was just that before the West Brom games and all that sort of thing. I remember sitting there, stood in the tunnel um, next to Richard's sneakers, looking at him, thinking, "You're having it today," you know. <laughs> like, you know, it just and we did. We actually battered uh, West Brom, and I think the manager got sacked the the week after. So, yeah, took great delight in things like that. What was your proudest moment at Wolves? I don't know. I did because it was so frustrating. I, I never got to that moment where I can remember something that was really stand out. But I, I just making so many friends here is a proudest thing, you know. To I find it it's really flattering in many ways that Wolves fans still remember me in high regard even though I, was, I wasn't part of anything successful it was a, a part of something that could have been mm -hmm. and I think Wolves fans just saw that I'd, I was giving 100% every time even though sometimes I wasn't fit enough sometimes you know and, and um, I've, you know I loved the club for that and it was yeah nothing really stands out as an individual sort of time game or performance or anything like that um, how would you want to be remembered by the Wolves fans <sighs> I, I think it's, it's, as it is really is is what if you know I think I definitely think if I would have stayed fit probably would have stayed fit Froggy and all these I think we would have been a, a tremendous side again not just in the championship but in the higher yeah, premiership and things like that I think it would have gone on to be a, a, a good club everything was in place the Haywood family you know I was so glad when you know I'd long gone but when the, the Haywood family was still a part of it when it got promoted I was so happy for Jack such a nice guy and he, he, he said to me he said you played a part in it you actually agreeing to be the first one to come from a, a, a club above them really and yeah. um, it was the start of it. So I, I took tremendous pride from that as well. Thank you very much no, thank you. for joining us Cheers, on our Gold Club. Jeff Thomas. Enjoyed it.
Right, um, we, sorry, we finished the podcast and then we've forgotten something which Jeff has just reminded us of and I really, really want to get out of him because this is incredible and Looms, <laughs> you won't know about this. So there is a famous kind of myth, I guess, or whether you might tell us whether this is actually true and I think it might be and this is why I'm really excited about it. This is Brian Laws and a bus. Yeah, we uh we had a, a night out. It was a, a, a bar in the in the centre was celebrating ten years, and it was a, an all nighter. And it was starting at ten in the evening and going all the way through till ten the next morning. And there was people from Duran Duran there and all sorts of different people. Great night, and it lasted all the way through. And we lasted till about eight o'clock in the morning, and. I was living, like I say, down in Worcester. So I was walking with a group of the guys, Brian Law, one of them. And he's, he had his brother and his uh, few other guys with it. And I was walking to the taxi bank and they walked off to the bus station. And as I was getting into the taxi, I saw a big plume of smoke come up from the bus station and this bus was really revving really hard. And I was thinking, nothing of it until about... Two o'clock, and Neil Emblem, I think, ran me, said, do you know Laws, he's been locked up. I'm going, well, what's he done? He said he's took uh, the number 42 bus <laughs> on the loop of the uh, Wolverhampton Ring Road trying to get home with all his, all his, his family in the, in the bus thinking we're all going on a summer holiday. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was... Uh, he tried to run off as well and hid behind a, a newly planted tree was about six inches wide as well and got a big kick up the backside from a policeman that caught him. But, yeah, it, it changed Lawsy for sure. He became a different man after that incident and Graham Taylor helped him out, not going to prison, actually. He was uh, did a bit of damage to the bus, so thankfully nobody was armed and nobody uh, got in serious trouble. That sounds like a big night out. It was a big night, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> old school, old school team. Because I, I first heard a, a whisper about this that um, after obviously the thing that happened with Albion when they nicked a taxi. Oh yes, uh, yeah, on yeah. their on their trip to Spain. Yeah. And I tried to ask Tomo about it, and, and Tomo was like, "I will neither confirm nor deny." <laughs> we are, like I mentioned before, Steve Harrison was here, and he, he was probably one of the funniest guys in football and uh, he put up on the, the notice board a team of Wolverhampton a massive poster and every single picture was of Brian Law and underneath was once you wait for one they all turn up at the same time <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. good times brilliant <laughs> okay now we're done Thanks for listening to the Old Gold Club, powered by Wolverhampton Building Supplies. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review and rating from wherever you get your podcasts.